A really good evening, and I'm so looking forward to this. Um, if we could have the next picture, please, um, Tim, that would be fantastic. Now, I've got three pictures here uh, from left to right, and what I want you to do, uh, just uh, maybe think for yourself, but then turn and discuss with the people who are around you are, which of those three pictures best to you describes the relationship between science and Christian faith. So on the left-hand side, we've got, are they best of friends? Uh, on the middle, we've got, are they sworn enemies? And on the right-hand side, we've got, are they uh, quarreling siblings? So kind of like a brother and a sister, kind of, um, So just have a think. This isn't, this, there's no kind of right answer necessarily, but this is from your point of view, which best sums up, not how, they sh how things should be, but how things are. So how things are between science and faith, are we best of friends? Are we sworn enemies? Are we squabbling sister and brother? Uh, just give, give two minutes to discuss that, and then you'll get a chance to vote, and we'll see what the room thinks. So off you go. Just turn, talk to the person next to you. Great. Okay. So um, let's start off. Just, let's just start off with a vote. So you've got one vote. You can... You can use it in one of three ways. Who would say that today, in your experience, science and faith are best friends? Just put your hand up. Best friends. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Who would say they're sworn enemies? Put your hand up. Okay, Andrew. Okay, Andrew. Right, okay. Who would say they're kind of quarreling sisters and brothers? Okay, most of you. Who's... Andrew, you can't have two votes. You've got to have one. Exactly. Is that three? Okay, is that three? Um, has anyone not voted? Okay, so most of us, okay, you've not voted. You've got, you've got another one for us? One and the same. Okay, great, thank you. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, so, um, most of us are going towards the right, uh, the sort of quarreling sister and brother. Let me just unpack that a little bit before we go any further. Um, you're right, those of you who think they are good friends, they certainly have been, and we will come to that. And it's certainly true that a lot of people, a lot of leading scientists both in Europe and in the States and in other parts internationally, are Christians. So there are lots of people who are scientists and committed Christians. Uh, but secondly, it's definitely true to say that, that in parts of this, uh, that we are, uh, sort of, certainly some people see us as sworn uh, enemies. The thing I like about that picture in the middle is it's not, I'm not quite sure who's really in charge of that encounter, because actually the, the cat... The cat looks more like it's not going to give way than the dog who's thinking any second now I'm going to run because uh, this is getting dangerous. Uh, but there has been, in my lifetime, increasing antagonism between the scientific community and uh, not just the church but all religious uh, communities. Uh, a very good example of this would be a writer called Richard Dawkins, uh, who some of you will know about. And uh, this is one quote that I think is, uh, sums up where uh, he, his thinking is at. He says, it's fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threat to humanity caused by disease, but I think a case can be made that religious faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. So that's, so that's where Dawkins is. We're basically not just say faith is neutral, but religious faith of all kinds is as bad as disease. And he uses the word eradicate. Uh, it just wants to see it, just see it ended uh, altogether. So it's, there's definite truth 
in the middle one. I think probably that's more the scientific community looking at the kind of Christian and other religious communities. There aren't many Christians, maybe a few, who would, in a sense, want to see the same traffic going back the other way. But maybe that means that we as Christians feel defensive when we're talking to scientific people because we know that some scientists really don't want to see Christian faith thrive. The, the squabbling brother and sister, which is at the end that most of you went for, it's, it's, it's maybe broadly true. Maybe with the same family, we just have different gifts and temperaments. We just need each other, but we see things differently. And it's the people on both extremes who see things differently, but most of us are in the middle. Well, we're going to try through tonight. We're going to have two sections of what I'm looking at. First is we're going to do a little bit of history. But I promise you, it's Andrew, it's good history. It's good history. It's, it's, you see, Roz is on my side. It's, it's, you trust me. Thank you. It's good history, and it makes some really interesting points about and so it's the history of this relationship between science and faith. And then the second uh, time I want to use to talk about a, a way forward and how Christians and people of science can get the best out of each other. So that's where we're going tonight. But please hold those three pictures in your mind as we dive a little later into some history and into some ways forward. Thank you. Great. So we're going to do um, a little bit of history, but it's good history, and it's interesting history, and it's interesting that we should all know, but it's also interesting that we should be proud of, uh, because the Christian faith has really given birth to what we know as science uh, today. Tim, if we cover the next slide, uh, please, that'd be great. So my, the main point of this section is that it was Christian faith that made science a real thing. Let me explain a little more deeply. The conviction at the heart of science and of the scientific method is that the universe is orderly. It makes sense. It's, been, it's put together in ways that are regular, ways that can be measured, ways that can be explored, and ways that can be understood. Now, that has not always been taken for granted in the history of our world. And it was Christians who brought us uh, to that point. And it was Christians that brought us to the point uh, to say, for instance, that experiments are repeatable. That if you do uh, the same thing again, you're, you have a good chance to expect that there will be a similar result. It was uh, Christians who began to see that the laws of physics, for instance, in how they affect the world uh, that we live in, uh, can be relied upon. Uh, their constants. Uh, now, when you get into quantum theory, which is a bit newer, uh, some of that begins to collapse uh, just a little bit, uh, but it still holds true. And the thing that we want to look at today is how, really, about five or six hundred years ago uh, and more, it was Christians, in a sense, who took us uh, to the brink of what we now know as a scientific outlook and a scientific way of understanding and approaching the world. Uh, so next slide, please, Tim. Uh, the, the first one is that it was, it was the Old Testament, really, that prepared uh, the way for understanding the world in a scientific way, as we would describe it now. Uh, I, I don't think it would be fair to say that that was the view that was held then, but everything that is there in the Old Testament helped to prepare the way uh, for this. In particular... 
The Old Testament holds that the universe was brought into being by a single almighty being, a creator God. It was not, says the Old Testament, a universe that was made by many different uh, competing gods, all of whom have like a little bit of area over which they're responsible. And we still see that in some animistic uh, views of the world, in some parts of the world today. But certainly back when the Old Testament was written, that view was much more uh, common. That in a sense, there would be a mini-god of Winchester, and so therefore, in order for, your, for things to go well in Winchester for you, you needed to somehow please or honor or appease that God. But the trouble was there might also be a competing God of water. And so therefore, was, were those two gods potentially in competition when you were a farmer who wanted rain? Who did you pray to? The God of Winchester or the God of water and of the rain. And the, the, the Old Testament had this unified view that there is only one God and that he created all that we see and that any talk of sort of mini deities or mini gods controlling little parts of what's going on it is not true. It doesn't fit with the whole picture of uh, where our world is. Uh, next one, please, Tim. Thank you. Uh, the next thing to say is that it was the early medieval church in Europe uh, that became a place of scholarship uh, where learning and understanding and, and, and uh, advances in farming and in medicine, all of those happened uh, within uh, the life of the medieval church as it began to think more clearly and closely about what our mission in the world is. And so that took the church into the areas of education and farming and caring and lots of things like that. And so we as a church amassed a whole level of understanding about the world. And this brought an insistence on what you might call the rationality of God, that the universe, as we see it and experience it and perceive it, is the creation of a creative mind of great genius and infinite detail. So that's where the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the church got us to. And those bring with them the first stirrings of scientific exploration. And so every single one of the giants of the early scientific method were all, literally all, committed, enthusiastic Christians. Uh, Galileo, Sir Francis Bacon, Sir Isaac Newton. These were people who came to the created world already convinced. They came convinced by the Bible and what the church had learned that they would find in the world order and not chaos, and that they would find beauty and design rather than random luck. And it's interesting historically to see that there was no equivalent scientific breakthroughs or consciousness in either Buddhist China, for instance, or in the Islamic Middle East. Now, both of those cultures had other amazing cultural wonders of their own, 
but neither of them gave birth to what we now know as a modern scientific understanding. And that was because you had Christians in the 15th and the 16th century who'd read the Bible, who'd explored, and who said, we expect to find in creation signs of the mind of the person that put creation together. And that was what drove uh, the early uh, outpourings of science. I want to stop, though, for a tiny bit with this chap here, uh, who's Galileo, who was one of my heroes. He was an astronomer in the 17th uh, century. And in uh, the start of the 17th century, he, he published something called the Starry Messenger. Uh, Galileo was one of the first people to use a telescope. He didn't invent the telescope, but he was one of the first people to properly look at it and start to look at the night sky and understand what was happening in the night sky. He discovered, for instance, that if you looked at the moon through a telescope as opposed to through your naked eye, if you looked at the moon through a telescope, you could see that it had mountains and valleys. Now, that doesn't sound extraordinary to us because we're watching uh, the Indians and other people land lunar modules on the moon, and so we've seen what it looks like. But nobody had then, and the assumption was, going back at least 1,500 years, maybe longer, that the moon, and it makes sense if you look up at the moon tonight, the moon was a flat white disk that was kind of stuck onto the sky. And so Galileo was a bit confounded when he looked at the moon through his telescope and he saw that it was full of big mountains and valleys and, and, and it wasn't just this big white uh, flat disk. He also looked into the sky and he, he, he saw the Milky Way, which I'm sure all of you have seen. The Milky Way to the human eye looks like a kind of smudge of light across the sky. And he was one of the first people to say, it's not a smudge of light, it's a whole load of planets that are just a very long way away. And he was the first person really to see that. He was also one of the first to see that there were some moons that were in orbit around Jupiter. And so all of those, um, in a sense, observations from Galileo led him to believe in a view that had been actually put forward by somebody else called Copernicus about 70 years previously, and that view was that the planets of our solar system are in orbit around the sun. Whereas at the time, the belief was, in a sense, the Earth was the still stationary center of our world, and other things were going around us. And he was the first person to say, actually, we and other planets are in orbit around the sun. Now, there was initial widespread uh, support for this view uh, and uh, from all uh, branches of intellectual life, including the Roman Catholic Church, including the new Protestant Church. But then the Catholic Church did turn against Galileo and it took many years for them to admit that they'd been wrong. It is an example, their treatment of him, of part of the church refusing to accept a scientific advance and a part of the church holding on to outdated concepts through a desire to be true to the Bible. But we do need to dig a little deeper. The story has been distorted over the years. A recent survey of scientists revealed that a large majority believe Galileo was tortured and imprisoned by the Spanish Inquisition for his views. He wasn't. That's total propaganda that's been made up.
Uh, secondly, Galileo remained an ardent Christian for the whole of his life. He believed that his new view, along with Copernicus, that the sun stood at the heart of the, um, of the solar system. He believed that that was entirely and completely in line with the teaching of the Bible. So he believed that fundamentally. He also saw, and we can see even more clearly, that what was taught and thought about the planets in medieval times wasn't biblical. It actually came from uh, the Greek philosopher Aristotle right back in the fourth century. And Aristotle's view of, of what the world looks like had been then taken and read back into the way the church read the Bible. So I want to leave you with a quote uh, from Galileo that tells us about his courage, but also the depth of his Christian imagination and scientific commitment. Because he was somebody who had to do a really difficult thing. He had to, in a sense, he had to take forward where his, uh, his views and his observations were taking him, and at the same time, try and convince everybody that he hadn't ditched his faith and that he wasn't arguing against the Bible. Uh, we now know he was right. But at the time, a lot of people doubted him and gave him a really hard time. This is what he said, though. The laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. Isn't that a brilliant description of what's going on? The laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. For him, he would say, Christians and people who have a scientific view are looking at the same world and they are seeing the same things. And we both together can see both the hand of God, but also the hand of God described in tantalizing and intricate detail, which science continues to uncover and to show us and to make advantage of. So that's the brief history lesson. We're going to go forward in a little while and think about how do we take this forward in the current climate. Uh, so as Jack said, yes, in, in one sense, I kind of feel in my lifetime, I've largely, partly because I did arts, not sciences, uh, when, uh, certainly for my A-levels, and partly just because the culture has really changed, I feel like I've been on the back foot for most of my life, in the sense that there's always been seemingly scarily intelligent scientific people basically saying, um, Christianity doesn't really know what it's doing. And um, there are lots of really strong reasons for why uh, we need to just either let Christianity die or we actually we need to put it to death. So I kind of feel for much of my life I've been on the, on the back foot. And things are changing a little bit now, but what I'd like to do now is just to offer three questions uh, that we might in a sense, use to engage with people who, who have what you might call a solely scientific point of view, and so therefore wouldn't allow any evidence except what you might describe as scientific evidence. And, just, and so these are three areas that we can use to explore and engage with people, maybe who've read some Richard Dawkins, and they're thinking, well, you know, because Dawkins basically says, um, Christianity doesn't make sense, intellectually, but worse than that, he would say it's also responsible for a lot of the evils that we see in our world. And so we would be a far better world, in his view, if Christianity just disappeared altogether. And that's, that's, quite, that's, pr that's pretty tough. That's not someone saying, I don't really care about Christianity. It's saying, I want it to end. 
And so what I'd like to do in a sense is just to think about some areas that we could um, discuss and engage with people of that view. And here's the first one, uh, and Tim might tell you afterwards what that equation means, uh, but the, the first question is, can science explain everything? Uh, because I think almost all of us find that day to day, a very s narrow scientific uh, view of the world is neither satisfying nor is it sufficient. So it's not satisfying and it's not sufficient. We want uh, and we need to know why as much as we need to know and answer the question how. And that's a fundamental insight that people have faith have. That a very narrowly scientific view of seeing the world is just never going to be enough to be satisfying uh, intellectually, morally, and emotionally. Uh, we find, for instance, that scientists are as likely as all other people to be wrong, or to be proud, or to be holding on to the past. Most things that matter if you think about the things that matter to you deeply, things that would make you write a letter, things that would make you get on a train and go somewhere, things that would make you go up to London and, in a sense, and protest about something, things that really deeply matter to us can't be proved solely, solely with an equation and it can't be reduced to chemical activity in our brains. It is bigger, it is deeper than that. There is much more to the world than we can first perceive and measure. And as people, Christians want to be curious explorers of the world, not taking everything at face value. We want to look deep. We want to look in the corners. We want to look everywhere to find out as much truth as we can. But of course there is a, and it's not, that, it's not as common as it used to be, but there is a scientific uh, worldview that says basically, unless you can prove it mathematically in an equation, then it can't really be true. None of us live like that. None of us love like that. None of us hold our values like that. And so it's right, if, if you're trying to engage with somebody who's thinking in these ways, to say, can, well, just tell me, can science really and satisfyingly explain everything? Or are there other instance, areas of truth that we need to draw into the discussion? And most people, when you push them, will say that they are. So that's question number one. Here's question number two. Um, we need to ask people very respectfully, knowing that there are areas of tragedy and huge mistakes in the history of the church. But we need to ask still, will you admit that science has its own shady past? particularly since Darwin. Science and secular humanism, uncoupled as they have been at times from religious faith, have a terrible record, arguably far worse than religion. So secular humanism has been used for the ugliest of political ends. Think of people like Hitler and Stalin and many communist leaders. They took a twisted version of evolutionary theory and they used it to justify all kinds of things, genocide, mass killings, torture, humiliation. And so uh, when you've got someone like Dawkins saying the world would be a way better place if we have uh, no religion, we need to say to him, just read the history of the 20th century because the adverts for a religion-free, science-only world are not 
actually very compelling. And if we are no more than chemical reactions, if our only story is solely that we are competing on the evolutionary race for supremacy, then there are ultimately no grounds for much of the morality that we hold as fundamental. So why, if you are a secular humanist, why insist on human equality in terms of race or gender? Just think about that for a second. If you, if you hold to a, science, a solely scientific view of the world that basically says uh, we are in an evolutionary fight uh, for supremacy, then why would we worry about a world in which we are just and fair to people of all races and of uh, all genders? Why would we struggle for the equal and dignified treatment of the weak and the vulnerable? Because the 20th century has shown us that if you get a leader who's completely imbibed this, they are willing to kill not thousands, not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people because they feel that they don't matter. Another, for instance, would be um, in uh, the, what you might call the animal kingdom, so in, in the jungle, female primates, for instance, are routinely sexually assaulted by male primates. That's how it goes down in the jungle. Now, to say, to say this is deeply and completely wrong for humans, so I see that is completely unacceptable, is to say that we as humans are different that we have a bigger, deeper story than the rest of creation. Now, we as Christians have an absolutely watertight case when it comes to the question, should males be able to routinely sexually assault females? Our answer is completely watertight. No, they can't. And the reason they can't is because every single person in our understanding is made in the image of God and so therefore has a dignity and a worth Every single person, doesn't matter how strong they are, how weak they are, what color their skin is, every single person. And so it's right then that we engage with people and say, well, if you're saying that the church and religious faith in general has caused problems in history in the past, and of course the answer is, we have, You've also got to say that a solely scientific, narrowly scientific view has done equally or even potentially more damage. Here's the third question. Third question is, will you admit that some scientific claims require as much faith or sometimes staggeringly even more faith than what you might call religious ones? Um, does anybody know who this man is here? That'd be great if you did. Anybody know? No, 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 no. It's Martin Rees, who is uh, a very uh, eminent astronomer. And he has written, Martin Rees, so very able, eminent astronomer, he's written extensively about the fact that our universe is observably fine-tuned for life. And let me explain what that means. What he means by that is, imagine digging into the operating system of the universe and discovering that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of bits, different bits of code, and all those different bits of code all align to make life as we know it possible. And, and further, that even one of those tens of, if only one of those tens of thousands of lines of code was slightly different, then 
all life, not just human life, but all life in our universe would be impossible. It just, it couldn't exist. And so Reese has spent a lifetime charting this and just seeing the way that the universe is so incredibly put together that all the constants, all the things that underlie everything that happens, if only one of them was changed just by the tenth of a tenth of a tenth of a fraction, it wouldn't work. We wouldn't be here. Now this is where it gets interesting. So he has three possible reasons for why this is the case. The first is literally pure chance. It's just luck. It just so happens that the universe developed in this way. But he basically says, as do almost every single scientist who look at this question, he says the probability of that is so incredibly mind-numbingly small that he dismisses it. He says it can't be. It can't be chance that has meant that that our universe is so amazingly, creatively, and brilliantly put together. So it's number one chance, he says, it's not that. Number two, he says, is we might live in a universe that is designed by a creator who intended to generate life. The trouble is, Reese is already a committed and confirmed atheist. And so he says, well, I can see the arguments for that, But because I'm an atheist, I can't possibly accept that these things point to uh, a God who intended human life and other life to exist. So he goes for number three. He says, it's not chance, that's clear. It's not a creator, because I already believe there is no such thing as a creator. So this is what he goes for. He proposes that there aren't just tens of thousands, but there are millions of parallel universes in the whole uh, of created uh, order, and that each one of these millions of different parallel universes are all governed by slightly different laws of physics. So if you popped across to the next one but two, then gravity would work a little bit differently. If you popped across to another one, then other constants would work differently. And that's his proposal, that there are millions of universes, and we just happen to live in the one where things work. But in all the others, all those other constants are slightly different. Now, he has no evidence for this. And it is an extraordinary ask to take this seriously because there is no evidence whatsoever that we live in a a place where there are multiple parallel universes. And I would say it requires a far greater leap of faith to believe that we live in a whole load of parallel universes for which there is no evidence, rather than to believe that all these fine-tuned examples of why and how life works in our universe works because it was designed by a creator who wanted to generate life. Uh, So there are three areas then that you might want uh, to explore. And as we finish, uh, just let me chart uh, a possible way forward. Science and faith were the best of friends uh, 500 years ago. And we've had some difficult moments ever since, and both of us are at fault. Now, there are some who want to betray us as sworn enemies, uh, particularly this brand of uh, atheist scientists who've been on a public mission uh, to kill off Christianity and religious faith altogether. Although they are beginning to sound like a shouty old man, and people are getting embarrassed about their angry outbursts. 
Some prefer the squabbling brother and sister thing, battling for supremacy, jealous of the attention that the other one is getting. We should be friends, Christians and science, arm in arm. We Christians should be curious, wondering at the givenness of creation, exploring and mapping out what is out there. Now, we're, of course, we are not all Sheldon Coopers, uh, but some of you are. Some of you are gifted scientists, or you're passionate about science or engineering or medicine or computing. And if that's you, you have an invaluable contribution to make who is, as someone who is a wholehearted Christian and an expert scientist. And so throw yourself into your research and your learning, grateful that we live in a universe that bears the fingerprints of our Creator. Understand our world for us. Uncover things that we don't know. Design things that will help. Design things that will heal particularly with regard to the greatest crisis the world has yet faced, the climate chaos that is bearing down on us. As Christians, we are uniquely well-placed. We believe we're made in God's image, caretakers of this creation, charged with a caring role and an imaginative role as we relish the beauty of what God has made. But also, we do that with understanding, and we develop, and we heal, and we make things better. Now, as we finish, two things. Firstly, next year, we're going to dive even deeper into this as we look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the new year. So some of this is going to bubble up again. Uh, secondly, our final slide uh, should have, uh, I think, examples of the two best resources that I think are out there if you want to dive a little more deeply. Uh, the first one, it's one is Read Anything by John Lennox who is um, a professor of maths at Oxford. Uh, that book, Cosmic Chemistry, is very good. Uh, he's all over YouTube, so he's very easy to find. Uh, he's, he's the person who's debated people like Dawkins. Uh, incredibly uh, good and intelligent and witty uh, man. And in fact, we're, we're trying to get him to come and do an event here uh, next year. Uh, the second is called Confronting Christianity by Rebe Rebecca McLaughlin, and uh, she's uh, absolutely brilliant, and there's a fantastic chapter in there on science and faith uh, that you would enjoy. It's only 20 pages long. That's a fantastic book, but that chapter on science and faith is fantastic. Thank you very much indeed.